And I'll just say before we jump into this passage, this is the passage that if you read the Bible in a year, you just, you just, you just skip it. All right, we're at the end of the epistle, and we're going into Paul's travel plans and him informing, you know, of how the churches in Asia greet you. And there's one verse in 13. They're like, ooh, ooh I think I'll, I'll focus on this one. But by and large, sections like these are ignored in the scriptures. Um, I think today we're going to find some be really, uh, really helpful and really encouraging. Uh, but let me just set the stage for a second. So a lot of you guys know uh, Buster. He's our senior pastor here. And uh, some of the guys on staff like to talk about Buster-isms. So there's things that Buster says all the time. Uh, and if, you, if you're here for over the years, uh, you'll hear him say these things, and it's just great. Uh, but one of my favorite Buster-isms is that sin makes you stupid. That's what he says. Sin makes you stupid. And uh, he says it all the time. I'm sure he didn't come up with it originally. I'm sure other people have said that. But uh, there's some really good theology behind that statement. Um, the scriptures, uh, I think as Westerners, we typically think of sin as just wrong moral actions. The, the scriptures talk about sin more as a, a living evil. In the book of Genesis, when, when Cain's about to kill his brother, they say sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you. James 1 says that sin conceives death. There's a sense in which sin's alive. It, it, you give it an inch, it takes a mile. Um, just think about the ways that sin might make you stupid. Have you ever noticed how when you fall into one sin, that sets you up for lots of other sins? Uh, the first time you do something, first time you gossip about somebody you know, that actually sets your heart up to gossip about them all the time. Uh, when you have a secret sin, uh, you often sin to hide that sin. You lie to your friends. Every time someone asks you how you're doing and you say, fine, you are lying to them, right? Um, I think even more insidious than that is when, you're, when you live in sin, you are ten times more likely to doubt that God loves you and that other people love you. Uh, Russell Moore said one time, Russell Moore is the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's a wonderful guy, has, has this kind of uh, poignant way of saying things, but he said that, uh, this is extremely profound, he said that there's no one more pro-choice than the devil walking into the abortion clinic and no one more pro-life afterwards. So the idea there is the devil, he tempts people to grievous sin and then when they've done it, he accuses them and he throws the law at them. Um, and maybe you've noticed that in your own life. You sin and all of a sudden you're in worship or you're living in sin, you're not repenting, you're, not, you're, you're staying in it. All of a sudden, man, you have not felt the love of Jesus in weeks. Your heart is cold and hard. Um, and at the same time, you might even start to become suspicious of other Christians. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I, I have seen as my time as, as a pastor of this church that people who live in sin look for excuses to get away from other Christians. They assume the worst about other Christians. Um, and if we're going to understand 1 Corinthians 16, this, uh, this kind of difficult passage to get our heads around, I think the thing that we have to get is that the Corinthian congregation was living in sin and like all human beings had all these issues going on. They have just gotten an extended punch in the face from the Apostle Paul. And one of their, one of their great temptations would be to think that, oh, high and mighty Paul doesn't really care about us. And he, you know, why should we listen to him? Um, they, uh, their hearts, just because they're human beings, they're living in sin, man. They, they have not sensed the love of Jesus or of other people. 
And so we see at the, at the end of this letter, um, after all of these rebukes that I'll go over in a second, after all these things, uh, we see Paul lovingly and gently restore this church. Uh, we see him pretend, not pretend, but act and speak and, and, and talk to them like they are any other church. They're a part of the family. I think the whole point of this passage is, in spite of yourself, you are still a part of the family. You are dearly loved. So let's, uh, let's just read this, and as we do, I just, want, I just want you to keep your ear out. If you've been in class and you've been through 1 Corinthians with us, keep your ear out for just how different this passage sounds, how different its tone is, how it, uh, how it just, it seems like things are back to normal. 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every worker, every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just thank you that every bit of your scriptures is God-breathed and useful um, and profitable for us. And let's pray that this morning, we would find 1 Corinthians 16 as profitable to our souls. We pray it would instruct us and teach us and um, just minister to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one of the most difficult things I have found uh, in my very short tenure as a parent is disciplining my children. Uh, and there are a lot of issues. Uh, first of all, my inclination is just to get angry and discipline them when they annoy me, you know, that kind of stuff. But even beyond that, all right, and you're not parents, but think about when you were kids, okay? Uh, the difficult, the most difficult part I think about disciplining children is how in the world do you help a two-year-old see that you are causing them pain 
for their good. And maybe you guys had parents that they would spank you and they would say, Honey, I want you to know that this is hurting me way more than it's hurting you. You know, what kid is not like, that is garbage. You know, you're a liar, mom. Um, seriously. And, and, and I think and that's when discipline's done right. I mean, think about some of you guys probably got disciplined in really unhelpful ways growing up. You know, you got spanked because dad got angry. He wanted to get his anger out. Or, or maybe you got the cold shoulder or your parents manipulated you into doing right or whatever. Um, or, heck, maybe you had parents who didn't discipline you at all. You had no category for what it looks like to be caused pain for your good. Anyways, one of the most revolutionary things that, I, that I've heard about parenting was in Sarah and I's foster parent training class. You, uh, you want to connect with your children while correcting them. That your goal when you discipline is that you, they leave the discipline feeling more loved by you and more connected to you. And you guys aren't parents and you're like, what in the world does that matter to me? Okay? Um, it matters uh, because I think 1 Corinthians 16 is a father falling all over himself to help his children know that they are loved. He has just, he has just laid it out. I mean, you just go home and read this letter. We'll just walk through for a second. All right? here, here are some of the things Paul has said uh, to the Corinthians. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I cannot address you as spiritual people because you are still in the flesh. You are infants in Christ. Again, imagine you're a coffee with your friends, all right? And that's what they lead with, you know? Uh, 4.8, Paul's making fun of the Corinthians. He's saying, without us, you have become kings. You are so arrogant, you're acting like kings. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5.2, he just goes on and says it. You're arrogant. Uh, chapter 6, verse 9, he says... Uh, if you continue doing the things that you're doing, you will not go to heaven. He says it very plainly. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you weren't here for that, we found that our favorite wedding text is actually an extended punch in the face. You can go back and listen to that lesson if you want to. And 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, your, your theology is so bad that it undermines the entire Christian faith. Just think about it. And guys, a lot of my lessons have been really like, mm, through this book, because that's the tone of the whole book. And all of a sudden... It's just back to normal, 1 Corinthians 16, right? We're talking about how everybody loves them, how we're going to send this offering to Jerusalem, how here are our travel plans. It's like everything's back to normal. And I think the idea here, I think the main point of this passage is that in spite of yourselves, in the middle of all of your sins, you are still a part of the family. Uh, I think we see here uh, in verses 1 to 4, we see some family responsibilities. In verses 5 to 12, we see some family plans. In verses 13 to 18, some family commands. In verses 19 to 24, some family affections. Uh, verses 1 to 4. Look at a, it starts with, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, when you see that phrase, now concerning in 1 Corinthians, it's typically something that the Corinthians wrote a letter asking Paul questions about. So they were, they were curious, what do you mean about this collection? What are we doing here? And if you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this collection was for the suffering church in Jerusalem. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and the church was persecuted, so Paul was raising money throughout all the churches uh, to go support this suffering and persecuted church. Um, so, uh, and look what, look what Paul says here. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do? This idea. 
that the Corinthians are on equal standing with these other churches in the middle of their junk. Uh, and then the, the plan here, of course, uh, is that they are to intentionally and sacrificially give on the first day of every week. Lay aside something so there's no collecting. The idea here is they're, they're to intentionally and sacrificially uh, plan to give so they can give willingly and joyfully. Um, and I, I think uh, typically the way you've probably heard these verses preached is, uh, hey guys, plan to give, okay? You know, you tithe, get admissions, save up, give, all right? And if you're not giving, then give. But uh, if you just stop there, you miss something really, really significant about what's going on here. Um, you have a group of sexually immoral, theologically errant, unloving, divisive Christians. And your final, one of your final pieces of advice to them is to save up money to give to other churches. Like, do you really expect these idiots to do that? Right? They can't even gather without blaspheming. Think about that. That was uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 or 11 and 12. It was when you get to the Lord's Supper, it's actually worse because of the way you treat each other. And Paul's saying, save up money and give to someone else. And I think, uh, I think our logic would say they need to figure out stuff at home before they can they can help others. Right? There's that Christian song that says you can't love others until you love yourself. Right? Paul's logic is the opposite here. He says, uh, in some senses, what's going to be best and most healthy for you is taking your eyes off yourself, of looking towards others. Um, but I think there's some familial stuff here, too. Uh, you know what my favorite, my, my foster daughter's favorite thing to do? Of all the things she does, all right, her favorite thing to do is to fill up my dog's bowl with dog food. In fact, if she sees me do it, she gets mad. Daddy, let me do that. You know? Uh, she also loves doing laundry. She loves uh, um, folding clothes, vacuuming. My last foster son, some of his favorite, favorite things to do were to help little Nora walk down the stairs. He loved protecting her. Um, and that's very counterintuitive. Most of us tend to think that kids hate responsibility. They hate doing something most teenagers do. All right. But uh, there's this stage where responsibility equals belonging. The kids get it better than we do, right? If you just ask someone to show up and listen, you don't really trust them. But if you give them responsibility, something that has to be accomplished, meaningful work, you're communicating to them, you matter. You really belong here. So uh, restoration's not going to be found sitting on the couch, looking inside, dealing with your stuff. It's going to be found in participating in the larger work and mission of the church. And I think I think Paul, look look how businesslike the, it is in one to four. He's not calling them out for their lack of generosity. He's just saying, hey, save up and give. Get outside yourself. You're a part of the family. You have responsibilities in your family. Um, just a brief word of application on this. I just really want to challenge a, a commonly held notion, particularly people that are our age, and that is that once my heart's in it, then I'll put my hands in it, right? Once I really feel like I belong, once I really feel like I, I, I got behind this, then I'll get involved and serve. And this passage, and I think the rest of the scriptures say the opposite. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The idea is where we put our lives, where we put our hands, where we put our money, that's where our heart goes. And the idea here is restoration for the Corinthians. Primarily looked like giving themselves to the church. If they wanted to feel like a part of the family, 
They should give his name. And so wherever you are, if you don't really feel connected amongst a group of believers here or to the larger believers in the world, the best step is not to wait until you feel like you are, but to jump in. You want to feel connected to this church? Serve in this church. You want to feel connected to the the international church? Give your money to the international church. So you see family, and and you will feel a belonging, feel this familial affection through responsibility. So uh, they are such a part of the, the Corinthians in the middle of their junk and all their sins. They are such a part of the family. They have family responsibility. But next we see some, uh, some travel plans. And I'll just call these uh, family plans. The Corinthians are so loved that in the middle of all this stuff, Paul is going to let them know what's going on with all the people they care about. And this is important, okay? Uh, in second, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, uh, the big issue in Corinth, the biggest one Paul addressed first was they were a divided church primarily over allegiances to particular leaders. So some were like, I follow Paul. Some were like, I follow Apollos. They didn't really care about Jesus that much. What they cared about was their favorite Christian teachers. And uh, they were fighting over them. Paul rebukes them very strongly. Um, But here, all of a sudden, who shows back up? Paul and Timothy and Apollos. And I think think the, the, the main idea here is, I love you guys enough tell you about the guys you care about. I've already, I've already rebuked you. I've already, I've, already, I've already put you in your place here, okay? But now, I know you love Apollos. I know you love me. I know you, I know you, know what's, you want to know what's going on. I'm going to tell you. Um, and just look what we see here. We see this mix of love for the Corinthians and a priority for the Lord's work. Paul says in uh, uh, verse 6, he wants to spend the winter because, because oh, sorry, it's verse 7. I don't want to see you in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Man, after reading this book, do y'all want to spend time with the Corinthians? They fight at the Lord's Supper, right? They, like, the, remember the, all that discussion about prophecy and tongues? You can't even sit in church without five people interrupting each other. And Paul says, I want to spend some time with you guys. I really want your company. Um, Paul's affections are divided here because he wants to spend time with them. Verse 7, if the Lord permits, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me. He says, guys, I love you. I want to come. But I also want you to know the gospel is my priority. That's where I'm at. Um, and notice next we have Timothy. And Timothy wasn't one of the guys they were fighting about. And Paul's, uh, Paul's commands, I think Timothy, probably verse 10, when Timothy comes, that probably means when Timothy brings the letter. My guess is he was delivering the letter to the Corinthians. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, Paul's commands to them are to, to see that they put Timothy at ease. Again, putting a rookie pastor, kind of guy like Timothy, into the Corinthian congregation would be like throwing some kid to the dogs. All right? It'd be rough. It's not, it's not the place you want to go on your first, your first pastor's assignment. So, uh, and, and Paul knows their nature. He knows that they are very prone to despise and argue about leaders. So he says, I just want you to put Timothy at ease. In verse, uh, verse 11, at the very end, he says, Timothy is very valuable. I am expecting him with the brothers. Um, I think, again, you've got to know, Paul's taking a risk sitting Timothy. It might not go well, um, but he's saying, I I trust you guys enough. Even though you've been fighting about Christian leaders, I'm going to send you a rookie trusting that you're going to treat him right. And then we have Apollos again. They they were fighting about Apollos. Just notice here the same thing. Paul, Apollos wants to come, 
but it's not appropriate at the point. The, verse, the end of the verse says he will come when he has opportunity. It also says, uh, I don't know what your translation says, but it says it was not at all his will to come now. Uh, in the original language, um, it's just the will. That's why there's a little, a little number four there, and it points to the bottom of your page. Uh, so this could be God's will. It could be the idea that it's not God's will for him to come yet. Uh, but I think, I think the idea here is that Apollos is busy with the Lord's work, just like me. He wants to see you. He desires to spend time with you. He wants to hang out with you. But he's giving himself to ministry. And again, uh, this is very tempting to skim over. Uh, but it's really important to ask, why? Why does Paul include this? Again, uh, this is actually maybe one of two sections in the New Testament that discuss travel plans at this length. Really, uh, Romans 16 does this, and 1 Corinthians 16. There's really not, if you look at most, most epistles, they have greetings and plans, but they're very brief. This is the only one that's five or six verses. Um, and I think, I think the idea here is there is a normalcy after restoration. Uh, part of me and Sarah's story uh, is that uh, before we seriously dated, uh, I blew things in a really bad way, and she called me one night and said, I never want to see or talk to you again. And uh, that felt good. Uh, just kidding. I deserved it. Uh, but um, unfortunately for her, we kept providentially running into each other, and uh, we just had to figure out how to be at least peaceable and cool. Anyways, uh, I think Sarah was sitting with one of her friends who liked to embarrass her, and he saw me walking down the road and like, hey, Leland, come here. And so anyways, we had to figure it out. Um, so we went to Starbucks, and uh, my plan was to like have this like, you know, big reconciliation. And what we ended up doing was just talking about life and catching up. And that was more restorative to us than anything else could have been. We just caught up. How are, you, how are our friends doing? What's going on in your life? How are you doing? And I think there's a real sense in this passage where things, Paul expects things to be back to normal. He expects the Corinthians to listen, to repent. He trusts they're going to do that. And now, it's just business as usual. You guys are back. You're still a part of the family. In spite of all your junk, here's how Paul is doing. Here's how I'm doing. Here are our plans. I want to come see you guys. I love y'all. Um, also notice, uh, I think there's a uh, a little perspective in this passage that uh, is instructive and helpful and intended to be helpful. Notice that Paul's dilemma here is his love for the Corinthians and his work for the Lord. Apollos likewise. His love for the Corinthians, his work for the Lord. And I think there's this idea here, um, perhaps, that Paul wants them to take up that own perspective himself. He's saying, hey guys, here's, here's, here's how I'm thinking about things. You, you, you get torn between love and the Lord's work. Um, Second Peter says something incredible. It says that you have faith of equal standing to the apostles. That's the very second or third verse of uh, Second Peter. Uh, those who have a faith of equal standing to us. And I think, I think there's a sense in which uh, the Corinthians really looked up to Paul and Apollos. They even idolized them in some senses. And Paul's saying, listen, if you love us and look up to us, that's great. All right? Take up our lifestyle. If you really look up to us, take up the way we're living. Be torn between love and affection for others and the work of the Lord. Focus on that. You see how outward-facing this passage is? Right? 
Uh, it's just, just like the other one. First one is focused on those Christians who are way out there that you don't even know. Give to them. All right? And this one is now, now focused on the work of the Lord and on love. And just think briefly an application. Uh, change your struggles. All right? I know some of you guys struggle. It's Friday night, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't need to do. What am I going to do? Ugh, that's scary. Okay, I get that. That's scary. All right? Or you've got like two or three social events, and you're like, okay. There's a girl I have a crush on at this one. There's a guy that I don't really like. And over here, a lot of my friends, the activity is kind of boring. And like, over here, you know, like, like you have all these options. You're trying to choose. And there's a struggle there, okay? I get that. All right? It's like going to Walmart having 50 peanut butters. All right? I get that. All right? You have this fear of missing out. Um, I would just encourage you to change your struggles. Don't look at your life thinking, which of these activities benefits me the most and gives me the most pleasure. Think about, how can I love? Where can I be the biggest blessing to people? On Friday night, what can I do that makes me most useful to God? Which of these activities is most loving? Sunday morning. Not, okay, who do I sit by? I gotta make sure I'm comfortable. I gotta make sure, you know, like, I get the dynamics. I've done it before, okay? Gotta make sure, I mean, my, me and Sarah sit in the same place every Sunday, you know? Anyways, um, but where, where can I be most useful in this room? How can I be most, most of a blessing? All right, so far we've seen family responsibilities and family plans. And now I think we'll see three family commands. These are, uh, these are final kind of overarching big general commands. Look at uh, verse 13. First one is be spiritually strong. It says be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Uh, maybe uh, if you're reading through this passage and you get all this travel stuff and then you're like, okay, verse 13, finally, got something I can chew on, you know? Uh, I think it'd be as unhelpful to interpret these four commands as different commands. Like there's a difference between being watchful and being strong and acting like a man. You're like, how does a girl act like a man? You know, how do you do that? I'm just kidding. Sorry, that was a joke. It's fine. Okay. Uh, the, the idea um, is, is to be spiritually strong, to, be, to have a faith that actually strengthens you. Um, watchfulness is alertness. Um, the, the verb of act, act like men is really courageously, brave. Uh, being, being strong is the idea of standing where you are. Um, and I think, I think that the general idea of this is that the doctrine of the Christian faith impacts your experience of life. So, so, example, all right? Uh, hearing, you know, that verse in Matthew 5 about, or Matthew 6 about God cares for you. He provides for you. He's going to help you. You know, look at the birds. Look at the, look at the, look at the, look at the flowers. God provides for them, all right? Taking that and actually letting it calm your anxieties. Having the truth impact you. Reading a passage about the second coming of Jesus, all right? And actually having that truth make you more watchful, more sober. I think that's the idea here, being strong in faith. And then you have uh, verse 14, let everything you do be done in love. Again, uh, I think true strength in God's family revolts, results in practical acts motivated by love. And we've seen a lot about love in 1 Corinthians. It's to repent of arrogance. It's to be kind. It's to be patient with the sins of others. It's to live a life that's motivated by concern for others. I just think practically, I think it makes... Uh, love the controlling rule of your life. You work, and you eat, and you play, and you sleep for the good of others. 
you go to your job, whether you're sitting down looking at graphing paper, drawing stuff, or you're on a computer, or you're with people, you, 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 you govern and rule those things in your life under the rule of love, under being a blessing to others. That's what it means to let everything you do be done in love. And most interestingly, this third final command is to submit to good leaders. Paul spends a couple verses talking about how good Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus are. And in verse 16, he says, Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. And verse uh, 18 ends with, Give recognition to such people. Um, this would be a real challenge to the, to the uh, Corinthians, but it's just a, I think it's a very plain command to submit to godly leaders, not just to Paul, not just to, not just to you know, John Piper's preaching, okay? Submit to your pastor's preaching. Submit to your local people. Um, so, um, there's a lot we could say in application, uh, but I think there is a, uh, there's a reason these commands are so general, that they're so like, all-encompassing, they're such big commands. Um, in the medical world, there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands, of medical tests you could run. I had one this past week. You might go to the doctor, and uh, they might draw blood, and they can do all sorts of tests with your blood. Tests for all sorts of things. Uh, but if you ever go to the hospital, which I hope you don't, um, there are really only four or five things they will monitor continuously. They're called vital signs. And there are four or five, and if you're a medical person, I jacked this up. I'm sorry, okay? But I think it's uh, pulse, blood pressure, uh, respirations, oxygen, how much oxygen you have in your blood, and uh, I think it's pain threshold, and one more thing. I don't know, okay? But when you're in a hospital, all right, if, you, if, if nurses and doctors can keep those four or five things in the right places, they keep people alive. There are thousands of the tests they could do, lots of stuff they got to work on, diseases they got to treat, okay? But then just keep those four or five things in the right place. They keep people alive. And I think uh, these commands are just vital sign commands. Uh, the Corinthians have a lot to work on. They got a lot of stuff to deal with. They got a lot of theology to work out, church life to work out. But I think these things are three general things Paul wants them to hang their hats on. Three things to focus on. Some vital signs. Whatever you do, make sure you do these three things. Everything else is very important, but these three things ensure that you are alive. Um, this is very helpful to us. Uh, I think it's really good to have to have the idea that there are some things in my Christian life that are more important than others. Listen, if you want to go on the Whole30, which is a crazy diet, and lose 30 pounds and run a, run a half marathon for Jesus, wonderful, okay? So that is way down here on the list. All right? Your body's important. Treat it like a temple. Yes. But that's not as important as making sure that you are living a life of love. Or that you are strong in your faith. Or that you're submitting to godly leaders. Those are the three main things. Those are ways you know that you are genuinely in the faith. Now, of course, if you feel like you're genuinely growing in those things, yeah, great. Work on, work on your eschatology. Okay? Work on studying something. Work on this. But... It might be very helpful to you personally uh, today or whenever to go home and just ask yourself, Am I, when was the last time that something about Christ actually strengthened my heart? When was the last time that something in the scriptures or a sermon actually changed how I felt and changed my experience? Maybe you ask, uh, when was the last time I can say that I honestly did something with loving motivations, that I showed up somewhere that I would never have shown up for selfish reasons, that, I, that I've actually, that, now again, I don't think anyone can do perfectly loving actions, okay? 
But can you think of a time when you genuinely acted for someone else's welfare? And finally, man, when was the last time that I responded to one of my pastors preaching or counsel? Have I joined the church? It's hard to submit to your godly leaders that are local if you actually if you, if you don't have an official relationship with them. You know, it's like you're dating them with a big question mark at the end. I'll leave whenever I want to. You know, that's what. Now again, I'm not. I don't want to camp there. I say that a lot. Okay, I don't want to camp there. But um, it's a great question to ask. Am I submitting to my local leaders? Those kind of things help you know you're a part of the family. They help you know you're in the family of God. Um, all right, and those would be stretching things for the Corinthians, especially the love and submission. They were a selfish and rebellious bunch. So we've seen family responsibilities and plans and commands. And the beautiful thing is that this passage ends with family affections. The Corinthians are dearly, dearly loved. Look at that, verse 19. Again, I've skipped this verse a hundred, however many times I've read this verse, I've skipped this verse. The churches in Asia, of Asia send you greetings. You're like, oh, great, okay, let's keep going, all right? This verse came alive to me uh, a couple weeks ago. I was in, a, I was in Jordan. And uh, there was this great guy I met named Pastor Adele. We had breakfast a few times. He stayed in the same hotel I was. And, uh, and, you know, in his broken English, it was really fun trying to communicate with guys who spoke half English or whatever. But uh, he was like, Leland, do you know Pastor Marshall? And I'm like, I'm like I don't think I know Pastor Marshall. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Charleston. I'm like, well, I don't know him. Um, he's like, okay, he's like, go home, meet him. Just tell him I said hi. You know? Tell him I love him. Tell him I miss him. I really, really miss it. And uh, I think what's really important about verse 19 is Paul's not a liar. There really were people in Asia who genuinely cared about the Corinthians. There were a lot of churches in there. And they, they, they weren't, you know, again, the Corinthians might assume, hey, all these churches are judging You know, they're hearing these bad reports. No, no, they love them. There really are people who desire to see them. Um, it's not just the churches. Uh, Aquila and Prisca, who were these uh, leaders that show up in Romans and in Acts. We don't really know much about them, but they're very prominent people in the early church. Uh, they send the Corinthians at the very end of verse 19, hearty greetings in the Lord. Not just greetings. Hearty. They, they really love these guys. And Paul himself, look, the, the last words of 1 Corinthians are love. Verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ. Jesus. The uh, this book that has been such punch in the face, so many issues, such a hard, harsh tone in many ways, ends with a hearty affection, a love. Um, and I think that I think we see the reason why uh, in the passage. Look at uh, look at verse twenty-two and twenty-three. If anyone has no love for the Lord. Let him be accursed, our Lord. Come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ. So it's really, it's kind of interesting. This, it seems like they don't fit. Why do you have all this like affectionate love and then curse those people who don't know Jesus, you know? Um, that's kind of an interesting dynamic there. But uh, I, think, I think the idea is that there is a, a great divide in humanity. You know, you have two kinds of people in the world ultimately. Those are those who are loved by God, who, who are sons of God, who are going to rule the universe with Jesus, who are righteous before the Father, and then those who are ultimately cursed because they've rejected Christ. 
There's, and, and that's, guys, if you don't believe that, you cannot believe the Bible unless you believe that. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. It's exclusive. Right? But here's the thing. Paul is confident in verse 24 that the Christians are in Christ Jesus. And all of their stuff, in the middle of their sins, there are genuine ones among them who really know Jesus and who love him. And if that's the case, they don't just have the love of God and the love of the Father and the love of the Holy Spirit. They have the love of the church. You're in the room this morning, in the middle of your stuff, in the middle of your guilt, in the middle of your sin. All right? You are in Christ. You've embraced him by faith. You are loved. You are dearly loved. And whatever else is going on in your life, however much work you have to do in dealing with your stuff, growing in your faith, if you know Christ, you're on the right side of that dividing line. Whatever else is said about you, you are dearly and affectionately loved. There's a lot of power there. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but uh, there is something most people in our lives that we're really close to, we kind of just uh, take for granted. And then something breaks our relationship with them. We get in a fight, something happens. Maybe, maybe it's most prominent in romantic relationships, but I think it's all kind of, maybe you've had a really terrible week with your roommate before, all right? And it's just this tension, and it's just kind of, everyone is miserable. You're mad at each other, you're miserable, right? And then finally, all right, hopefully if you're a Christian, you can do this, okay? You apologize, forgive each other, things are okay. And all of a sudden, that first hour where it's normal, it's like, you know, you just relax. It's just, uh, there's this joy. It's like, like that first uh, that first day when you're not sick anymore. You ever like, got that one? You just had this nagging cold for months. And then you wake up one day and you're like, I can breathe. You know, I feel, I feel amazing. Like, ah, oh, life is so good. Um, and I think in a lot of senses, this whole passage is meant to do that. It's meant to help them see in the middle of their stuff, in the middle of all of the hard things Paul said, that they are loved, that the relationship is, is preserved, it's restored. They can have fellowship with the church. They can have fellowship with Paul. Um, and, and, and Matt Reagan said uh, in his sermon two weeks ago, he had this illustration about a gospel fork, uh, about his friend who would confront him with really hard things to him. He said, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this fork and pretend that it's everything God's done for you in Jesus and how God loves you in Jesus, Okay. And when I say really mean things to you or things that sound mean, I just want you to look at it. All right? Look at Christ. See his love for you. And uh, I think that one of the main things about this passage is saying, look, look at the love of Jesus for you. Look at the love of the church for you. Look at how many people care for you and are praying for you and are rooting for you. Feel that. Feel the security of that. Feel the joy of that. And then go deal with all the stuff I've got to do. You guys are secure in Christ. You are you are loved by God. There are people here in Christ who love you dearly and pray for you. Take that. Let it soften your heart. Let it, let it work on you. And then go and apply the book to your life. Change those foolish ways of thinking. Repent of the ways you've been living in rebellion. You will find yourself feeling like a part of the family. Let's pray. We do ask of your love for us, that you would um, preserve us.
and have mercy upon us. I pray you just let this passage just work your grace and mercy in our lives. Pray that you.